You know, I uh, I think that it's been it's been a, a trying time. It's been a trying season, but it's been it's been so good as well because it has forced us to come face to face with, come to grips with the reality of uh, our own faith, the reality of our own need for God. And I think that the more and more this world begins to realize that it has a need for God, the the sooner we will begin to turn to God and the better things will be. I think we need to start with an acknowledgement that we need the Lord. Amen. We Amen. need the Lord. Yes, we do. Michelle, did you have an announcement you wanted to make about CR? Just my regular Would you come up and do that? Michelle's going to share with us uh, a short, brief announcement about Celebrate Recovery. And they're they're starting up again. You guys have yeah. services again. Excuse me. Come on. What's that? Yeah, do your thing. Do your thing. Do your thing. She's got an announcement to make. Do your thing. Do your thing, Michelle. Well, hello, Forever Family. I am a grateful believer in Jesus Christ. I celebrate recovery of her poor self-worth. And I'm currently struggling with accepting things I cannot change and leaning on the serenity of the Lord. Also, some other things, but I'm not ready to share. You can come on Tuesday nights if you want to find out. So Celebrate Recovery had resumed open share groups, which is the smaller portion of the group, a few weeks ago. But this coming Tuesday night, we're doing our full program, which starts with worship, a lesson or a testimony. And then we do our men and women's, men separate from women's open share groups. Where is this at now? This is at 6 p.m. at Faith Baptist Church on Tuesday. <laughs> we're actually asking you to enter at the Northeast Exit. There's lots of signs. You can't miss it. Um, so please join us. Unfortunately, we do not have childcare yet. So I am in dialogue with the state trying to get an exception as an essential worker. Because as we all know, community is important to recovery. And one of the things that make child that makes celebrate recovery different, besides being Christ-centered, is what I do. What do I do with my kids when I'm trying to recover? It's not a burden we want you to have to have. We'll take that one away from you by providing free childcare. So um, I've been sharing with you a little bit about Celebrate Recovery. For those of you who don't know, um, uh, the second Monday of every month. And um, I've started going through the eight principles, which is also unique to Celebrate Recovery. We are a 12-step group. But like I said, we name our higher power, Jesus Christ. Who comes and what's said there is confidential. Um, if you haven't named your higher power, you can take what you need, but we encourage you to come. We get a lot of new believers through our group. Um, and if you have any more questions about Celebrate Recovery, you can just go to CelebrateRecovery.com and find a Celebrate Recovery near you. But in Lincoln City, it's at Faith Baptist Church, 6 o'clock on Tuesdays. So I've been going through the eight principles, which are based on the Sermon of the Mount. Um, so long before there were... 12 steps and other recovery programs, Jesus laid out eight principles for us to live our life on that continued journey of recovery, which is what? Change. Changing from our old self to our new self in Christ, right? Sometimes our lives become unmanageable and we need a little bit more help. Mm. And that's where groups like ours can come. And that was the first step. There is a God, you're not it. So if you're not Getting any change, you're probably relying on yourself and not God. 
So the second principle is, I put it away, it's up there on the phone, or up there on the thing. Uh, earnestly believe that a God exists, that I matter to him, and that he has the power to help me change. And that there is a difference between a traditional 12-step. A chair, a doorknob doesn't have power to give back to you. You can certainly let things go to a chair or to a doorknob. That's the exercise, letting it go. But this is where we make a difference in a Christ-centered recovery because God has the power to help us change. All right, the verse, the beatitude that goes with this are blessed are those who mourn for they they will be comforted. The practice of mourning is to lay down all our griefs and burdens and wait in expectation of God's hearing, God's hearing them, comforting and responding. When we reflect on our brokenness and grief in our lives, we are embraced by the God of comfort who took the pain upon himself and he invites us to share in his love and put that into actions and share it with others who are mourning, who are broken, who are oppressed. The practice of reflecting on our own brokenness opens our hearts to many, to the mourning of others, mm-hmm. providing us with the truth. We are not alone. Mm-hmm. There is a comforter, and his name is God. It's one of the things that happens when we get stuck in that circle of shame and condemnation is that the enemy likes to tell us we're not alone. And I like to say that's the first lie we break in recovery, is you're not alone. And there is a comforter. There are many reasons to mourn the wor- in the world today, especially right now. Yes. The cross is the ultimate symbol of blessing and uh, well, blessing and mourning together. Today, I pray that you mourn for yourselves and others, that your journey of recovery or change leads you to the foot of the cross. I pray you lay down your griefs and burdens, that you put on a heart of mourning for the world around you that is with peace and with that weight on the peace and expectation of God hearing you. God hearing your prayers and providing you comfort. Thank you. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Michelle. You are absolutely not going to believe me, but I did not remember that Michelle had an announcement this morning. It's funny because you reminded me. Reminded you like what last week or two weeks ago. Completely forgot that she had an announcement this morning. That word is almost identical to the word I'm about to preach. That you gave about yeah, yeah. So recognize, just you know, pay attention. Let's open our hearts up to the word of God. Lord, would you help us? Would you help us as we come before you? God, as we learn what it means to lament, learn what it means to mourn, learn what it means to take on that burden, God, because it is a step in the process. Lord, an important step in the process. So we pray that you would help us open our hearts and our and our eyes and our minds to receive from your word this morning as we continue to follow after you. In your name, Lord, amen. Well, today we're going to talk about the church and the role of Christians 
in the process of reconciliation. And it's a it's um, a sermon series that we began last week, and we're going to continue on. And we're looking at what are the steps that we can take in our own lives towards bringing peace and reconciliation in our world. And not just our world, the large global community, but I'm talking about our local community. I'm talking about our families. How do we bring about reconciliation? And we're going to go to Ezekiel 37 today, because if you remember last week, what I told you was that you are ministers of reconciliation. And it's not about trying to learn a bunch of skills. It's about discovering the skills that God has already deposited in you. Discovering what the spirit of God is already at work in you and bringing those things out and using them for the kingdom of God. So we're going to be looking at Ezekiel 37 today to learn about one of the tools we have in our toolkit that will help us to address reconciliation. Everybody who follows Jesus has the spirit of God inside of them. In fact, Jesus said, nobody can come to the father unless they've been drawn by the spirit of God. If you follow Jesus, if you are a Jesus follower, the spirit of God is residing in you today. You have power because of that. Not just a social power or political power or an economic power. You have a spiritual power because the Holy Spirit dwells within you. There's something in you which supercharges you. And if we would just learn how to draw out the gifts of the spirit that God has already deposited in us, we will become so much more effective at advancing the kingdom of God. And that's what we're interested in because the kingdom of God brings with it peace, brings with us hope, brings with it joy, brings with it love. How many of you think that the world can use a little more kingdom of God right now? So if we want to see the kingdom of God advance, it's the Holy Spirit working through you, through you, through us. And he's inside of each of us. So we're going to verse chapter 37 today of Ezekiel. And we're going to be talking about prophecy. Y'all are prophets. Did you know that? Y'all are prophets. We're going to be talking about the gift of prophecy and how God is using prophecy to advance the kingdom of God on earth. Verse one, this is what it says. It says, the Lord, the hand of the Lord was upon me. And he brought me out by the spirit of the Lord and set me in the valley, in the middle of a valley. And it was full of bones. How many of you feel like your life is like a valley full of bones right now? And maybe your world is like a place that is full of bones right now. Our country is in the middle of a valley of dead bones. Our world is in the middle of a valley of bones. 423,000 people have died from the coronavirus in the last four months. 423,000. That's 117,000 people here in the United States. 117,000. Now, finally, the virus has also hit our local town. Just this last week, the state of Oregon experienced the largest outbreak we've had so far down here in Newport where 124 workers at a seafood processing plant got sick. And from there, it's all spread now. There's people here in Lincoln City. In fact, there was a man in his 30s or 40s here in Lincoln City that was just airlifted to Salem. Uh, His wife is also in the hospital, and they have two children at home who are also sick, who are also tested positive. So it's here. It's in our shores. That's here. That's within um, 
but I'm not going to tell you exactly where it is, but it's within a 10 minute drive of this location. People here in this, in this city. And it's not just the death numbers. It's the economic toll that this has taken. Several businesses we've learned have shut down and they're not going to reopen here in town, even after the crisis is over. And as we've sort of shouldered this burden, this, this death, this, this valley of bones that we've come to accept as a part of our life today, now in the midst of this, this turmoil around the death of George Floyd and, and protests and, and even some riots, George Floyd's murder has sparked many protests, many just like the two that we had here in this region the last few weeks have been peaceful, but in other places they haven't been. Some have descended into violence. They're usually led by a small minority of people who either see this as a good opportunity or who are so filled with fear and anger and frustration that they feel like they have no other recourse but to be violent. And it's much easier to blame them, of course, than it is to blame the circumstances which produce that fear and produce that anger and produce that frustration and resentment. But our world today is a valley full of bones. And Ezekiel writes that the spirit brought him back and forth in the valley, back and forth, back and forth, to witness it, to look at it all. You see, the spirit wouldn't allow him to ignore these bones. He wouldn't allow them to be ignored. You can only hide death from your eyes for so long. But the spirit of God, the spirit of life, brings it up and forces us to see it, forces us to look at it. He pushes death into our face so that we would acknowledge it with all of its ugliness, with all of its perversion, with all of its destructive nature. We try to keep it at arm's length. We rationalize, we hypothesize, we think of all these crazy ideas that we have about why death should be kept at arm's length and what is it that would delay death. But the Spirit of God pushes it in front of us. Do you think that Ezekiel wanted to see that valley? Do you think that he was enjoying that? Was he masochistic? Did he want to see human remains on such a large, such a large scale by himself in the middle of a valley of bones? He didn't want to be exposed to that death. But the reality is that whether or not Ezekiel wanted to see it, the valley was there. The bones were there. The death was there. And whether or not we want to face it head on, death is present. It's a part of the world that we live in. And the Spirit of God brought Ezekiel to that valley because he didn't want Ezekiel to ignore the death that was present. The reality is that whether or not Ezekiel wanted to be there, there was a testimony in those bones that needed to be heard. There's a great amount of inconvenient truths to which we are currently being exposed. And while I would love to run back to the shelter of Jerusalem, run back to the shelter of my own house, back to the shelter of my Xbox, and ignore this valley of dry bones. The fact is that each one of these bones, each one of this death, each death that we're noticing today, each, each one of these 117,000 people have died in the United States so far, 
Each person that has been killed or that has been murdered or that has been done about by the injustice in our land, each person is a story, has a family, has children, has parents. I, I was so moved by Edward when he preached the very first time that we talked about the coronavirus here months ago. And he said, he said, don't you realize that people are dying of starvation in Africa right now, but you don't think about it because it's not touching your life. Now, all of a sudden, something is coming up that's impacting your life, and now it's a big deal. But the reality is that every one of those bones belonged to somebody. Every one of those people had a family, like the family that's now suffering here in our city and the many families around the world that are suffering, that have experienced loss, that have experienced death. And we want to hold them at arm's length. We want to rationalize it. But the outcry of the bones refuses to be ignored. The reality is that every time somebody dies of this virus, of injustice, every cry that goes out is connected to a voice which is bearing the image of God. So that death becomes not just an inconvenient truth. Death is not just a tragedy. Death is an affront to the image of God. And that's why Jesus, when he sat at the tomb of Lazarus and he's weeping there. And then it, what does it say? It says that he saw the people and he became greatly aroused. He became disturbed. Something inside of him was so angry and upset. Not because people were crying, but because he saw what death does. The destruction of life. And Jesus digs in his heels and he says, not today. Not today. Death might claim somebody every other day of the week, but not today. Lazarus, come out of there. I'm tired of this. Don't you see that's what God wants to do with our world? Where death comes in, Jesus wants to say, not today. Not today. We need to recognize that death is an assault on the image of God. One human created in the image of God died for each one of those bones that Ezekiel witnessed that day. And God was not satisfied to leave their testimony hidden. So he brought Ezekiel and he dropped him right in the middle of the valley. And I think today a lot of people feel like they've been dropped into the middle of a valley full of bones. Recognize that death has always been there, but we have kept it at arm's length. We have not acknowledged it. And now today, God is forcing us to acknowledge it. God has said no more hiding. Prophets are commissioned by God to see something that other people can't see. You're a prophet when you see something other people can't see. A lot of people think that sight in prophecy is about foresight. It's about telling the future, but it's not actually. If you read the Bible and not just read what people have written about it, but if you actually read the Bible, when prophets prophesy, they're talking about not foresight, but insight. You are neglecting the widows. Your worship goes up before God as a vain offering. You have neglected God and are seeking after other gods. That's not foresight. That's insight. That's divine insight. You are currently doing this. So there will be destruction coming. 
because of what you are currently doing. You are a prophet when you receive divine insight. Prophets see what others cannot. If you want justice, if you want reconciliation, now if you don't, that's fine. Might be a little disturbed with some of the things that Jesus says, but that's on your own business. But if you want reconciliation, if you want peace, if you want an end, you need to be willing to look in the face of death. You need to be willing to acknowledge the valley of bones. You need to see what others cannot see. I can't imagine what Ezekiel was feeling like on that day. Perhaps he was realizing and remembering the horrors that he had already witnessed. This is probably not the first time that Ezekiel had seen dead bodies exposed to the air like this. He had lived through the exile. And I'm sure perhaps seeing this being this valley brought up a lot of trauma of his own past. The things that he had witnessed as the Babylonians came and, and destroyed and took lives. And it would not have been shameful for him to have wept there seeing the death. It's a sad reality that we think of weeping as something weak. I think Michelle's point is incredibly important. Jesus wept. We have to learn how to lament. We have to learn how to grieve. So, so believe it or not, your first step, if you want to bring reconciliation to this world, if you, you want to be responsible for bringing peace, the first thing you need to do is learn how to grieve. Learn how to lament. Learn how to cry. And I know that doesn't seem right. I, whenever I'm talking about race or ethnicity or reconciliation, there's always a point, especially for people who haven't thought about it very much, when they start to think about race and racial inequality, the very first thing they say is, what can I do about it? Tell me what to do and I'll do it. Because they don't like it, right? That's actually, that's actually not the first step. That's not even the second step. Doing something about it is not helpful. If you want to be an agent of reconciliation, you have to learn how to grieve. You have to learn how to stop yourself from moving and just sit down and grieve and lament. That is your first job. George Floyd's family does not get the privilege of debating the finer points of law and order. They don't get the privilege of sitting around and, and wondering the what ifs and the, well, was it legal? And, and, and what about the response and that kind of thing? They just have to sit down and cry about it because somebody in their family has died. And if you want to help, the very first thing you can do is sit down and cry about it. I remember a guy named Reginald Thomas in Pasadena while we were down there in Pasadena. He was uh, somebody who suffered from mental illness and he was having a psychotic episode in the middle of the night and his son called the police hoping that they would come and help. And this was when we were going to Fuller down there and the police came and they tased him 12 times in a minute and his heart stopped and he died. And that Sunday, I remember because it, they, they lived like five minutes from where we were at. And so that Sunday after church, I went to their apartment and his mom was sitting outside and people were coming by, you know, and just kind of connecting with her. And so I just, I came and I sat down next to her 
And I said, I told her I was so sorry about, you know, her boss. And I just sat there and I, I didn't know what else to say or do. And I just sat there, but you know what? I think that being present in somebody's grief, although it doesn't really feel like you're doing anything, it's one of the more powerful things you can do and not trying to rationalize it and not trying to explain it away and not trying to defend anybody. Acknowledge, acknowledge the pain, acknowledge the suffering, acknowledge the grief and lament, allow yourself to lament. We don't, we don't like it. So we keep it at arm's length. Your job as a minister of reconciliation is to grieve. Let yourself grieve. And Ezekiel, he's writing that as he stands here in this valley of death that he's face to face with, he can't get away. In fact, it says that the spirit of God put him there, like it dropped him there. So even if he wanted to leave, he would have to wade through the bones in order to get out. And so he's there. And the spirit comes to him. It says here, here in verse 3, the Spirit of God asks him, Son of man, can these bones live? Can these bones live? How oh, I wish I had the answers to the problems that we're now facing. I appreciate your prayers for wisdom, but I'm not sure I'm going to ever get the answers. I'm not sure if a perfect solution will present itself. How I wish I knew how to solve the problems of poverty and hunger and war and racism. And sometimes I feel like I don't have the solutions to solve my own personal problems. I don't know if you ever feel like that. Hopefully I'm not the only one. Much less the problems of death and disaster and prejudice that exist in the world around me. Can these bones live? Once someone has accepted the reality of racial injustice... Once we've been able to grieve, we want to know. We want to know if, if it can get better. Son of man, can these bones live? I don't know. That's what Ezekiel says. I don't know, Lord. I don't know if they can live. Give me a break, God. You're the one who put me here. I don't know if they can live. Lord, only you know. To me, it just looks like chaos. To me, it just looks like the destructive nature of desperate people. To me, it just looks impossible, Lord. Gosh, I've been working in race relations for a long time. And I, I tell you, there are times when you just, you look at what needs to be done and what is currently being done, and you just want to lie down and die. Because you realize the task is so much larger. You know, it's taken probably 500, maybe 600 years to get to the place where we are right now. In terms of race relations, that the idea of race has been around for over 500 years. And I sit and I think about that. And now maybe in the last 50 years, we've really started to unpack it. Do you know, it could be another 450 years before we come to the end of this. I mean, if we're in the middle, if it's taken us 500 years to get here. And sometimes I look at that and I say, man, man, I could just. Can these bones live? Lord, I don't know. I don't know. To me, it looks like not, but I don't know. What do you think, God? And I think that there's somebody here 
somebody listening online, somebody who's a fighter, who's been in the fight, who's been in the trenches. And maybe it's maybe it's not necessarily racism. Maybe it's the fear and anxiety of being in this current circumstance. But you've been fighting and fighting. And the Lord comes to you and says, can these bones live? And you're saying, I don't know. I don't know if they can. God brings the question to your mind as you look upon this valley of death and you're saying, God, not again. Not again, Lord. More death. And God says, son, daughter, can these bones live? Can they live again? Can you cross that river? Can you make it across that sea? Daughter, is life possible here? Son, can these bones live? And you say, Lord, I don't know. God, only you know. Lord, all I know is they look like dry bones to me. And then he said to me, prophesy to these bones. Say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come over you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will become to life again. Then you will know that I am the Lord. It's not about what you can and cannot do. It's about what God can do in a hopeless situation. That is what prophets are able to see. They're able to see what God can do in an impossible situation. Can these bones live? It's obvious to Ezekiel that they cannot. But God can do what is impossible to bring life out of death. It's time for the church to hear the command of God and begin to prophesy to that which is dead and call it to life again. Many people in error think that these words are only concerning a future time. They concern the present. Prophets stand up before all people. They stand up before leaders. And they say, seek good and not evil, that you may live. That's from Amos. They say, hear the word of the Lord, like in Ezekiel. The reality is that the world we're living in is full of dry bones. Who will be the one to stand up? Whose voice will be heard at this time? Prophesy to those dry bones, sister. Don't, don't ignore them. Grieve over them and prophesy to them, brother. Prophets do not hide from inconvenient truths. Prophets stand between those who are suffering and those who are making them suffer. In fact, I was just reading yesterday. I have a book called uh, Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I encourage you, if you've not read it, you need to read it. It's not only readable, it will edify your soul. And in the Cost of Discipleship, Bonhoeffer talks about how Jesus was looking out over the people. And it says that he saw them like they were scattered sheep without a shepherd. And Bonhoeffer writes, Jesus was not satisfied with allowing people to be neglected without a shepherd. And so he came himself and then he called others to be shepherds, to go out and find people. You are the ones he has called. You are the agents of God. A minister of reconciliation stands in the gap. It's something that I think for a long time we've assumed a pastoral ministry, but God has equipped you with the spirit of God 
to be pastors, to stand in the gap between those who are suffering and those who are causing them to suffer. Bonhoeffer earlier in life wrote about what it means to stand up for Jewish people. And he said the role of the church is basically threefold. He said the first role of the church, when you're addressing a nation which is creating victims, he called it a victim-making machine. He said the first role of the church is to see to the wounds of those who are wounded, to attend to those who are suffering. The second role of the church is to prophesy, to speak to the machine, to tell it, acknowledge your wrongs, change yourself. You're making victims. Stop it. And then Bonhoeffer said the third responsibility of the church, once you have tended to the victims, once you have prophesied to the machine, is to throw yourself on the gears of the machine. And in doing so, to stop it with your own death. And so Bonhoeffer was implicated in and was involved in the plot to assassinate Hitler, which was the most successful and yet a failure. And he was hanged at Flossenburg in the concentration camp for that. And although he never, he never condoned the act of taking somebody's life, I think that with the situation he was presented with, he felt that the only way he could truly stand in the gap for those who were being destroyed was to do something that ultimately went against what he felt was at his core. Now, we're not there yet today. I'm not saying that we are. Please don't, don't twist it to say that we are. What I'm saying is this. Are you willing to lay down your life for the people around you? Are you willing to lay down your life for those who are suffering? Can you stand in the gap? Ezekiel, can you prophesy? Can you speak to death? Can you speak to these dry bones? Are you willing or are you not? Can you be a minister of reconciliation? Can we stand up for those who are hurting? Prophets don't shy away from inconvenient truths. Prophets stand in the gap between those who are suffering and those who are causing them to suffer. It's very revealing when the response from the church is more about protecting our own life and our own property than it is about protecting those who have been dealt injustice. It's revealing in the worst way possible. Justice is not a political issue. Beloved children, you've been commissioned by God to be reconciling ministers. Your first weapon is your own mouth. Lament. Lament and prophesy. Did you know the KKK is not a terrorist organization? According to the U.S., it's not on the terrorist organization list. Never has been. It's been around since 1865. Do you know that study after study has shown that if jurors are presented with the same exact case, the same exact circumstances, but if the suspect is black, they're up to 13 times more likely to convict. 13 times more likely to convict. 
than if he was white? Do you know that a bill declaring lynching as a federal crime was not passed until last February? Lynching, the lynching bill was first proposed to be established back in 1882. And since 1882, a bill to say that lynching is a federal crime has failed 200 times in the U.S. Congress. 200 times. 200 times. It has come before Congress and then rejected. And even when it was passed back in February, one senator, Mr. Rand Paul, has decided to hold it up on a technicality. So it is still not a federal crime to lynch somebody in the United States. To this day, it remains so. Justice is not a political issue. Did you know that for every $100 of accumulated wealth in the median white family, the median Latino family has $4.48? The median black family has $2.41 for every $100. We won't drag up the injustices suffered by our Native American or Asian American or other communities at this time, otherwise we would be here all day. What this world needs is prophets who will stand up against injustice, who will lament the reality of injustice suffered by people in this land, and who will speak to it, who will prophesy, who will behold these horrors and not look away from them. I've sat patiently while listening to many statements of condemnation about the violence which has cropped up in a few of these protests, I've sought patiently because I have agreed on a fundamental level that violence is not effective for bringing about justice. I've been patient because I believe that the mode and method of the production of a society has great bearing on its shape and a movement or a society that is built on violence can only ever reciprocate violence. It creates a society of violence. And so I've sat patiently by because I agree and affirm that violence is not the answer. But what we have failed to realize or what we failed to accept is that violence is inherent in the system of our society long before a protester broke any windows. A system that starves one child and fills up another child is a violent system. A court which does not mete out justice equally to all races is a violent system. A police officer who murders a man who's in detention is a violent police officer. And we are so quick to condemn the violence of others. Those who use their prophetic voice to defend systems of violence are false prophets. So if you're interested in condemning the violence which those very few protesters have produced, but you are declining... To address the violence which is inherent in our system of society, to speak out against the violence against black and brown bodies, to speak out against why is it an issue that the KKK, which has been around for 150 years, is not a terrorist organization, but Antifa, which has been around for about 10 years, is. Now, I'm not supporting Antifa at all. I'm just acknowledging the fact that Antifa has not lynched people in the streets, and the KKK has. But one's a terrorist organization, one's not. Why is that? 
And if we quickly speak out against these protesters, but we're not addressing the system of violence that they are protesting, then we are simply acquiescing to the violence which is already inherited in the system. A prophet has divine insight into this world. You see what people can't see. You have spiritual power, church. Put it to use. Ezekiel saw that the bones were dry. We need to see the dry bones. We need to grieve over them. We need to recognize that they are there. Only when we see rightly can we prophesy rightly. And only when we prophesy rightly can we begin to bring our conciliation to this world. At that point, we can see the kingdom of God advancing. So where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? Number one, look at the valley of death and lament about it. Look at it. Don't turn away from it. Research the Tulsa massacre. Look up redlining. Dave could probably give us some insight into redlining. Try to familiarize yourself with the names that people have been shouting in protests and ask why they're shouting those names. Give yourself permission to grieve. Don't let your knee-jerk reaction be defensive. I remember I was I was in a, a class maybe 15 years ago, listening to another African-American student describe systems of prejudice and discrimination and suffering that they've experienced. And immediately, of course, as had been the case for dozens of times before that, my first reaction was to come defensively and, and to rationalize and to provide good reasons why. And the spirit of God convicted me with a question. And that was, are you an honest person? And I said, yes, Lord, I think I'm an honest person. I try to be an honest person. And he said, well, why do you think that this person might be lying to you then? Could it be that they're just trying to be as honest as you? And I realized that while I was assuming they were lying, I might as just as well assume that they're telling the truth. And when I did that, I truly started to listen. I soon realized that even if they were lying 50% of the time, the things that they were describing to me, even half of them being true. Now, I try to be honest all the time. I'm sure I'm not, but I, I would say I shoot above 95%. I, I'm pretty straightforward. Somebody asked me a straightforward question. I'll, I'll give you a straightforward answer. Now, I was assuming this person here was lying to me all the time. Now, that's interesting. Uh, what if I assumed that they were shooting at 75%? Maybe they're not as honest as I am. I'm a holy person. Maybe they're shooting 75%. Well, brothers and sisters, I realized if only 75% of what they were saying was true, if only 50% of what they were saying was true, we had a serious problem. It was a problem that I was ignoring because I don't like looking at death. I'll admit to you. But I couldn't ignore it anymore. And so I began to listen. And I began to learn. And I began to grieve. And weep. And sometimes when I'm, when I'm crying during worship, that's what I'm experiencing too. I, 
apologize for that. But especially when I'm singing a song in Spanish, I think about our Latino brothers and sisters. I was, uh, just one more story. I know I'm, that's all right. I'm not gonna apologize. Thank you, Michelle. I was at a conference a year ago and uh, it was on race within our denomination. And, and uh, one of our uh, Latino leaders, one of the leaders in our denomination was talking about, he was, he's a DACA recipient, which means he came to the United States illegally as a child. And he was describing that situation and about how his parents sent him because the Barrero that they were living in, there was really only one option for him. And that was a life of crime. There was no way out. And so his parents made the decision to pay somebody to get him across the border, to put your child in a car and say, I know that you're gonna get a better life there than you will here. And I may ever never see you again. But if I don't do this, you're as good as dead. And he said that he was shoved into a trunk and he was only seven. And so he was put on the bottom and other, other people were laid on top of him. And he said there was a hole. Right, right above the exhaust. And he said, as they're driving, you know, he would pass out every every half hour or so and wake up, you know, coughing. And But what are you going to do? And he said, the only thing that kept me going was I felt the spirit of God in that place. I knew that God had me, that God was near to me. And so when I sing in Spanish, when I sing Milagroso, Miracle Worker, Light in the Darkness, Waymaker, when I sing that in Spanish, I'm thinking about that. That you made a way. You made a way. You need to listen. You need to lament. You need to prophesy. Listen and lament and prophesy. And when we prophesy, we speak out. We call things as they are not. We say, come wind. Come spirit of God, put flesh on these bones. We speak to powers of death in our own life and in our own community. We speak to the power of death that's in the coronavirus. We speak to the power of death which is present in our own communities. We prophesy to it and we say, get out. You don't have any place here. The kingdom of God is advancing here. And so I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise. There was a rattling sound. And the bones began to come together, bone to bone. And I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them. And skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. And then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man. Say to it. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Come breath. Come from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me. And breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet. A vast army. And he said to me, son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. And they say our bones are dried up. And our hope is gone. And we are cut off. Therefore you prophesy to them. You say to them. 
This is what the sovereign Lord says. My people, I'm going to open your graves and bring you up out of them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up out of them. Then you, my people, will know. I will put my spirit in you and you will live. And I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I am the Lord and that I have spoken and that I have done it, done it declares the Lord. And I want to speak this over your own life. If there's an area of your life that has death written all over it. Spirit of God, come right now and fill these bodies, fill these people who are watching. I want to prophesy to that death and say, death, you have no place here. In the name of Jesus, you have to leave because the kingdom of God is advancing and you will live. You will live. I have faith in our God. I have faith in our God. When I pray about God ending injustice, when I pray about God ending this coronavirus, I don't do it because I want to sound like a good Christian. I do it because I believe that God is able. Because I believe that he will heal. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we come before you right now with our lives, the life of our community, the life of our nation. Lord, we have so much death here. I pray you would help us. Give us the strength that we need not to turn away. Give us the strength that we need to look straight on into it. God, build up our endurance for death. Because we can't ignore it anymore. And now, Lord, would you fill us with your spirit and give us a gift of prophecy. The gift of speaking to death. Lord, would you put it in the hearts of your people to be a prophet, to not ignore inconvenient truth, to speak unto power, to stand in the gap between those who are suffering and those who are causing them to suffer. The Holy Spirit, we know that we can't do this work apart from you. And God, right now we repent of ever believing that there was a politician or that there was a justice system or there was a judge who could bring about true justice. God, we repent of that. We acknowledge that true justice can only come from you, that it can only issue forth from you, Lord. So help us to be agents of your justice. Help us to be ministers of your reconciliation because God, if it's going to come from you, it's going to come through us. We are the presence of the spirit of God on earth. So Lord, would you come and anoint every person here, every person listening with your spirit and give them the strength and endurance that they need to be prophets, to be reconcilers, to be ministers in this world today. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Amen.
The Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you. May he cause your day to go well. May he cause your life to be sunny and full of love and joy. In Christ's precious name, amen.